It's Tuesday, May 29th, and this is The Daily Dive. There has been an interesting shift in the priorities of Americans with regards to their phones and cars. Americans are starting to prioritize their phone payments over car loans. Over the past five years, auto loan delinquencies have risen almost 20%, while mobile phones are becoming more integral in people's lives. We will speak to Bloomberg credit reporter Shelley Hagen for more on this. We will also speak to our space expert Rod Pyle for news coming from the expanse of space. Rod will tell us about two space objects with some really weird orbits. One might prove evidence that we actually do have a ninth planet, and the other is our first interstellar immigrant from another solar system. Finally, we'll talk about the changing landscape in restaurants. Increasingly, salt, which has been a tabletop staple for years, is disappearing from restaurant tables. There are a few reasons why. No one wants cheap salt, and there's also the chef's ego. We'll speak to Bloomberg food editor Kate Crater for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You link together payment priority with delinquency rates. And so as delinquency rates are rising, that means people are prioritizing their payments less for their automobiles. Joining us now is Shelly Hagen. She's a credit reporter with Bloomberg News. So I saw a write-up had a very interesting headline. Americans are prioritizing phone payments over car loans. What, (laughs) What is coming out of this new story? Yeah, that's right. We're seeing now that consumers are more interested in paying off their cell phones above their auto bills because consumers are relying more on their cell phone now more than ever. I mean, you can do anything on your cell phone. You don't necessarily need a car. You can order food, order a taxi, laundry service, you know, for your finances, watch TV. So cars are growing relatively less important and consumers now see their phones taking the place of what their car could be used for. Yeah, there was a study done, and they said that over the past five years, auto and credit card delinquencies have gone up. I know there were some figures attached to that. Can you walk us through some of that? Yes, so we've seen an increase in delinquency rates for auto payments. And what that means is that you link together payment priority with delinquency rates. And so as delinquency rates are rising, that means people are prioritizing their payments less for their automobiles. And if you look at the unsecured personal loan column, which might be considered your phone bill payment, those delinquency rates are decreasing, so people are more likely to pay those off. It says about almost about 20%, and same thing for credit cards, where people are behind on those payments. But it kind of makes sense. You know, those payments tend to be a lot higher in the hundreds of dollars, especially for car loans. And your phones, you know, depends on what kind of plans and what phone you have. It could be a phone plan of about $40, and then... Let's say you bought the new iPhone X, maybe the payment plan on that thing is about 50 bucks a month. So you're getting like $100 a month for this, whereas a car payment is $300, $400, $500, depending on what car you have and what your loan setup was. But that's pretty shocking that the trend and how it's changing. Yeah, and just um, as we get you know new technologies, your phones keep on getting better and better. You can do more things with them. Other assets may become more obsolete. I was looking at some of this stuff. It says, back in 2008, cell phones probably weren't as present as they are now, and they've just moved up the scale. So everybody's like, you know, the whole point of it, the prioritization of this has been changing. Uh, Is there anything else that we can see? Verizon is a big player in this, and any of these phone companies, are they doing anything different? How are they approaching this? 
Verizon's the only one to have started to issue these bonds that are backed by consumers' cell phone payments. Um, but we may see those happen because they've been perceived well by the investment community because they are perceived to be safer investments. And now we see a lot of wireless companies like Sprint or T-Mobile, they're letting you pay your phone bill in installments because when you go buy the iPhone 10, it's about $1,000. So instead of you having to pay it up front, you can pay it in loans. And so this is a way for um, wireless companies to not take a hit so much on the cost of the phone. How do uh, ride-sharing companies like Lyft and Uber play into this? Uh, Obviously, you can forego buying a car and having that car payment and use these services. Have their stocks been rising as this has been going on? There's definitely been multiple studies done on how Uber and Lyft do affect, for example, the taxi service. Right. And a lot of even a lot of cities now, they promote a lot of these plans, uh, you know, street reductions, you know, taking taking uh, streets from two lanes down to one lane so they can remodel the city and provide for more ride sharing opportunities, public transportation. Right. So bike I, lanes. Bike lanes. Exactly. So I know it's just kind of an ongoing trend in bigger cities and metropolitan areas. Does this hold true for middle America? Is this do these studies kind of apply across the board? You know, looking at the cell phone priority payments, those cover a range of consumers from every part of America, not just the metropolitan areas. All right. Well, we'll keep seeing uh, how this trend develops and how many more phones we buy and how many less cars we end up buying or how many cars get repoed after that <laughs> if you're not making your payments. Yeah. All right. Shelly Hagan, credit reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We can prove that something weird is going on out there from tracking these objects. If you look at that model and try and use any device other than a big planet out there, nothing else makes sense. And so the simplest explanation, the simplest solution to those problems is to say there's a great big thing out there. Joining us now is Rod Pyle. He's worked with NASA, the Johnson Space Center, JPL. You can read all of his stuff at pilebooks.com. Let's talk about some, some of the latest space news. <laughs> I, I love the way these people write it up because everybody's always on the hunt for a new Planet Nine since we lost Pluto as part yeah. of uh, one of the planets. Uh, so what's the latest with the uh, possibility of a Planet Nine? This all started with Pluto was discovered in 1939 and we fought forever that it was the ninth planet in the solar system. And then this guy, Mike Brown from Caltech, comes along, very famous astronomer, who now calls himself, I think his Twitter handle is at Pluto Killer. And he <laughs> said, perfect. you know what? That's not a planet. That's called a trans-Neptunian object. It's just a little dwarf planet out there in the outer solar system. And it's just not that big a deal. He got death threats and all kinds of pushback and so forth because people love the idea of Pluto being the ninth planet. Quick side question, because huh? I haven't seen a science textbook in a long time since I left you know, grade school. Does Pluto still get recognition as being you know, something? Obviously, it's not a planet, but does it still get some recognition in textbooks? Uh, Yeah, it's the coolest dwarf planet. So, uh, you know, once it got demoted, there was kind of a lull there because we hadn't really seen it except this little dot in the Hubble Space Telescope with a few blotches on it. But then when the New Horizons spacecraft flew past a couple of years later, we got this incredible imagery back. And here's this really complicated icy world with valleys and mountains and continents and all this stuff. 
And people looked at it and said, well, okay, it may be a dwarf planet, but it's a world, and now it's real. So it's the, definitely the furthest thing. It's got an orbit that overlaps Neptune, so sometimes it's the furthest, sometimes Neptune's the furthest. But it's the most distant planet most of the time that we have in our roster. Right. But there's been this, I, this, this goal to find, okay, there must be another one out there. And part of where this came from was more people from Caltech and others who were tracking objects beyond Neptune, sometimes crisscross Neptune's orbit or stay outside Neptune's orbit. And there's a lot of junk in the outer solar system that never consolidated in anything. It's just this big ring of rock and ice that's floating around out there. And it's, it's the leftovers from the formation of the solar system. So it's like when you cook something and you, you know, you, you chop up the vegetables and you throw the junk you don't want down to the garbage disposal. That's what's outside of, of Neptune and Pluto's orbit. So they started tracking those objects because now they can, because the instrumentation gets better and better. And they said, you know, these things are moving in a weird way. You'd expect them all to be moving in this kind of whirlpool circular pattern because that's how the solar system formed. It was this big disk of rock and ice and dust and so forth. And eventually planets consolidated out of that. But some of the these chunks of, of material they're looking at are moving inclined to that flat plane or they're moving the wrong direction or something. So they said something's affecting this. So over time, they've been building through supercomputer modeling this notion that there's some big dark thing out there that's affecting all these orbits. So this latest story is about an object they're tracking called uh, romantically 2015 BP 519, <laughs> which is moving in a very strange way. And by looking at that, they're thinking, okay, there may be something out here that's five or ten times the size of the Earth. And we really don't know what the hell it is. So it's very confusing, but very exciting at the same time. And it's one of those things that you kind of have to look at it indirectly and hone in on it by tracking other stuff you can see. And then eventually, hopefully, with a space telescope that's large enough, like the James Webb, which will fly in a couple of years, you'll actually be able to see it. We haven't actually laid eyes on this. There's no pictures or anything of what this possible Planet Nine thing might be. No, and there really isn't, there's only indirect proof. So you're basically saying we can prove that something weird is going on out there, but we can't prove that's what it is. But what's so compelling about this is if you look at the, the mathematical models they're building, which are from track data, this is the stuff they're making up or guessing about, but it's from tracking these objects. If you look at that model and try and use any device other than a big planet out there, to make it do what it's doing, nothing else makes sense. And so the simplest explanation, the simplest solution to those problems is to say there's a great big thing out there. Oh, that'd be great. That'd so, be great if we finally maybe, get that ninth one back. Or a Death Star, yeah, a Death Star. <laughs> there you go. Uh, another thing that was going around that was kind of interesting, happening closer to Jupiter, people were billing it as our first interstellar immigrant. It was a big asteroid that was also kind of doing something similar. It had like a, another a weird orbit. It was going the opposite way. Jupiter is sort of the bully of the solar system, and it collects a lot of junk around it. So it formed the asteroid belt by not allowing a planet to assemble there because it was so close to Jupiter's gravitational pull. So it's just a bunch of junk there now. And in Jupiter's orbit, there's a bunch of crud following it around the sun. And, of course, it's got 53 named moons and a lot more little ones that you can't name because there's just too many of them. So there's all kinds of junk floating around Jupiter. But there's this larger body here's another one of these great names 2015 bz 509 <laughs> uh which i know I love them. they great. really need to come up with a better naming scheme i gotta name it oscar yeah i love that it's in jupiter's orbit but it's going the wrong way so again you expect everything to be going the same direction in the same plane because that's how solar systems form but here's this weirdo that's going the opposite direction 
So again, by using mathematical modeling and deduction, the only thing they could figure out is that it came from another solar system and got trapped, but because it came at an angle at high speed, Jupiter yanked it in, into its orbit, but it's still traveling the wrong direction. Right. Astronomers said so. they believe they that it came around 4.5 billion years ago, that asteroid. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but isn't uh, Jupiter's gravitational pull big, big enough to set it in the, on the right track? Or it's just been, uh, it's just been in that... Uh, in that pattern for so long that it's not going to change. It's been in that pattern so long. It's not going to change. And I don't know how, uh, uh, what relationship it has to, to Jupiter in terms of the, obviously the orbit isn't exactly the same or it would slam into the planet. So it's, it's somewhere either inside or out of it, but I haven't seen that yet because it's a fairly new story, but you're right. It's been doing it for a really long time. So they said, you know, this isn't something that was yanked into this weird orbit over time. This kind of came in early on. It was just part of the early solar system. And the only other thing we've seen that we think can be definitely defined as an interstellar visitor was that weird thing last year called Oumuamua, which is Hawaiian for a messenger from afar. And it came into, passed through our solar system, but passed back out. So that was a high speed off angle. It came in from above the solar system, came through, dipped down, went far side of the sun and slung back out. So it didn't get captured. Right. The one we're talking about now 2015 BZ509 clearly was captured and a lot further back. And what's the significance of these types of findings? I mean, obviously, you know, it's things from outside of our solar system, but just another rock caught in our way. Is there anything that we can right. extrapolate from this? Well, we see early examples of the solar system all the time because meteors fall on Earth and people collect meteors. And you look at meteors and you say, oh, this is an old piece of the original solar system. Some of them, some are newer, some are older. It depends on where they come from. Some are chunks knocked off of the moon, but some of them are original space stuff. But we don't know if we're looking at something that's from outside the solar system. We assume not because it's so hard for things to get here because now stars are very far apart. Early on, these nebular clouds were bigger and closer together and more densely packed. So it was probably more common for stuff to get swapped back and forth. So a chance to see something that comes from another star system would be very exciting. It'll probably be the same as what we see here, but nobody can prove that yet. So until we get a chance to go out and sample one of these things, we just don't know what something from another solar system looks like. And with all these exoplanets they're discovering, they're finding that we thought that most solar systems would look like ours, but it turns out ours is kind of unique. An awful lot of them have big Jupiter-sized planets going around their suns in a matter of days or weeks, which is really wild when you think about how close they have to be. They're practically kissing each other. So our solar system is kind of the weirdo, so we'd like to know something about what the other ones are doing and what they're like. Rod Pyle, you can find all of his stuff at pylebooks.com, P-Y-L-E-books.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, sir. No one's figured out the best new salt shaker. The you know the ones you the ones you know the ones you think of immediately are those old school salt shakers that invariably hold like gross old salt with ancient grains of rice in them. Joining us now is Kate Crater. She's the food editor for Bloomberg News. Thank you for joining us, Kate. Hi, Oscar. I came across your article "Why Salt Has Disappeared from Restaurant Tables," and I love articles like this. I love stories about how restaurants are changing. And consumers, their experiences are always changing. Let's start with this. I mean, why are salt shakers disappearing from restaurant tables? Oh, there's so many answers to that question. But one of the main ones, I think, is that there is just no good 
no one's figured out the best new salt shaker. The you know the ones you the ones you know the ones you think of immediately are those old school salt shakers that invariably hold like gross old salt with ancient grains of rice in them, yes. and that salt is really bad. In fact, it doesn't help your food; it ruins it. I will have to say that I am always a fan of a really good salt shaker that has you know a nice big holes in it. So when you put mm-hmm. it on your food, like a ton of salt comes out. Those are always kind of hard to find sometimes, but I love those. Well, it depends what salt you put in it, because sometimes that's dangerous. That's like a hazard, right? You think you're putting on some salt, but depending on how big it is, you could have all of a sudden created like a salt spill on your steak. Right. <laughs> so they're dangerous. So restaurants and chefs are, uh, don't like these a lot of times because the salt is cheap, it takes away from the food. I think the salt is cheap and people know it's cheap. So I think it throws shade on the restaurant. If they have one of those salt shakers in there, it's, it just is like, a, I think it's an embarrassment at this point. Um, the other thing is that chefs have become really used to being in charge. You know, they're celebrities now. And so they think they should be the one seasoning your food. They don't, they think the way they send out the food is the way it should be. And they have the last word on it. See, I, I find that interesting. You know, take shows like Top Chef. Exactly. Uh, where they're elite chefs and, and whatnot. One of the main criticisms that always happens where the judges say, hey, it wasn't seasoned properly or there's mm-hmm. not enough seasoning here. You know, so I get it. That a chef is crafting menus and, and plates and dishes specifically seasoned properly, all that stuff. But, you know, they miss the mark a lot of times. So who's I to totally say, agree. you know, I want that extra little kick. But they think they're on Top Chef now. You know, they think they're on, they think Gordon Ramsay's there. And so they do, they want to be in charge um, and they, and they don't like you messing with their food. Yeah, one of the chefs you spoke to said that he calls it a big Dorito effect. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's Andrew Carmelini. And he was talking also about the fact that one reason here in New York I've noticed that the absence of salt is that we've seen a big return to French food, sort of like fine dining, but also French food. And that food is much simpler. So they're serving like omelets as appetizers and roast chicken. And if that kind of dishes under seasoned, it's much different than if like the explosive five chili chicken wing or, you know, spicy pork burrito. If that's missing salt, you almost don't see it because there's so many other things going on. Yeah. Another thing you point to is that tables are too crowded. What is this? <laughs> that's, um, I, I think that was a little bit of a lame excuse. But again, Andrew Carmelini, who's a terrific chef and has restaurants like La Conde Verde here in New York, said that his restaurants invariably have a lot of platters and small plates, and there's not that much space for salt on the table. And, you know, I do hear that. It it can depending on depending on what's going on. Sometimes those tables, like you've seen the Instagrams, there's not one spare right. inch of space. Yeah, space is at a premium uh, at tables. Space is I, at a premium. I, exactly. I agree, I agree with that, but I don't think it's the, sh- the salt shaker's fault. You know, it's maybe a <laughs> plate design, right? You can use a different plating method or something. I like wish that. I'd said that. It's not the salt shaker's fault. <laughs> um, one of the uh, um, dishes it seemed like that you tried it was a lobster with couscous and forty spices, and even 40 still. Spices. And even still, you said it needed some more seasoning. Exactly. There was like, it was 40 spices and it needed 41 or like seasoning. (laughs) You know, forget the 40 spices. This was um, at a restaurant called Chef's Club here in New York. And ironically, it's decorated with this giant thing of, with like this giant salt crystal that weighs more than a ton and apparently costs tens of thousands of dollars. But there was no salt on the table underneath it. And this, this little lobster was, it was... It was okay, but it really, it needed salt. And when they did send some out, it was like six grains in a bowl. And it's kind of like, 
can I get a little more salt? It was right. it was well, kind that, of, it was really that leads to the last part. Some of these chefs say it's not a good look. You know these old uh, salt grinders, these weird shakers. Uh, sometimes they'll bring you out a tiny little bowl with just a few flakes of salt, you know, mm-hmm. albeit probably a pricier salt, something a little more high quality, but they just don't want it on the tables. Is that kind of what it is? Well, I think I think a lot of it eventually comes down to expense. And um, so for one thing, if you're putting, you know, there's those super cute little bowls of salt that you see and sometimes even cuter if they have a little spoon, like a salt spoon with them. So they get stolen like you wouldn't believe. This um, Chef Josh oh, Capon be- says they just like walk out of his restaurant. Basically. I believe that. I believe that completely. I think I've seen it happen at a couple tables. I think my um I think my grandmother might be responsible for some of that. <laughs> yes. Some of those exactly. missing salt bowls. But he says but, you um, know, they're so cute. I know, and even even beyond that, even if you hated the bowl and you didn't want it, the salt inside it is generally pricey. Like that Malden salt costs a lot of money per little box and they you have to if you're using those little bowls, you have to throw them out and refill them for each new set of guests, otherwise it's really gross, you know, to think about someone's fingers going in there. And that's starts to add up. It leads to, hey, there needs to be some new type of salt shaker, maybe something that has a lot of usage and and looks really good, something that everybody can kind of come together on. Awesome. Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Oscar, so great to talk to you. Okay, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>